Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. This is America's 360, and I'm Wilson's Canada Institute Director, Christopher Sands, sitting in for your regular host, John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies, and America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin America Program, and Mexico Institute. Issues including poverty, inequality, social mobility, economic structures, rule of law, and standards of living all impact on how each of the Western Hemisphere's 38 countries responds to and integrates democratic practices. Democracy levels vary significantly across the region, where democratic transitions in some states occur alongside non-democratic riots and political overthrows in others. On December 9th and 10th, the Biden administration will host a virtual Summit for Democracy, an effort to bring together government, civil society, and private sector actors to mobilize an affirmative agenda for democratic renewal and to tackle democratic threats through collective hemispheric action. Additionally, Mexico, the United States, and Canada discussed the importance of making democracy a hallmark of our hemisphere during the North American Leaders Summit earlier in November 2021. The three amigos, so-called, reiterated their country's commitments to democracy and their intentions to support democratic movements and transitions across the region. However, rhetorical appeals to democracy do not necessarily translate into democratic action and preservation, especially in a region where multiple leaders' actions directly oppose their alleged commitments to democracy. Against this backdrop, exploring how elections, a critical democratic process, are being carried out and can help us glean the state of democracy in the region. Let's hear now from our experts. Latin America Program Director, Cindy Arnson. Hey, Chris. Argentina Project Director, Benjamin Gadan. Greetings, Christopher. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Uh, Brazil Institute Fellow, Daniela Campello. Hello, Chris. Hello, Daniela. And former Mexico Institute Director and current Wilson Vice President for Strategy and New Initiatives, Duncan Wood. Thanks, everybody, for having me here. 2021 has been a big election year in Latin America. Um, citizens will go to the polls at some point this year in nine Latin American countries electing presidents for five of those. Aside from the sheer volume of voters going to the polls across the region, what makes individual elections so notable this year? Benjamin, could I turn that over to you? Sure. I mean, I think the total number of elections, as you've indicated, is significant for the region. The fact that elections are being held in the middle of a pandemic is significant. The fact that they're being held at a time of broad anti-incumbent fervor in the region is significant. And the fact that there are elections still, despite you know a long period of democratic backsliding, is significant. We can talk about the quality of the elections, and some of them clearly are a sham, just putting on sort of the very most superficial showing of democracy to hide a dictatorship in plain sight. Um, but I think there are counterexamples as well that we can get into that provide, to me at least, some sense of optimism that at least procedural democracy has survived so far in Latin America, despite a long period of public discontent and some real difficult public health and economic challenges. Cindy Arnson. Let me just jump in. I mean, um, it is a, an important beginning of another super cycle of elections. There will be important elections next year in the region as well, Colombia and Brazil. 
Um, but I think it's it's really instructive to look at some of the public opinion polling. Um, there is a Santiago-based firm called Latino Barometro, and also Vanderbilt's project Lapop, uh, which publishes publishes the uh, America's Barometer. And um, even though people still call elections and 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 elect their their presidents and their legislatures, what's really notable. Um, in the laptop poll is that most people in Latin America varies tremendously from country to country, but most continue to express low confidence in electoral processes. And that's pretty shocking because if you look at sort of the minimum condition uh, to be considered democratic, it's this sense that you hold elections and there is a real possibility for alternation. And in Latin America, for many decades, since the transitions to democracy, people have talked about the quality of democracy, the quality and the strength of institutions, all these other things. But the basic bottom line has been the integrity of elections. And still we find that the processes inspire so little faith on average, again, with important exceptions. Daniela Campello? Yeah, actually, in my view, from all the trends that Benjamin mentioned, I think that the most striking pattern that emerges is the, the widespread, uh, widespread victory of anti-incumbents, anti-system uh, candidates, not only anti-incumbents. This is the case of Peru and Ecuador and Chile, uh, where voters rejected the forces that structured uh, politics in the last decade, like Correismo, Fujimorismo, Concertación and Renovación Nacional in Chile to elect uh, outsiders. The same thing happened in legislative elections in Mexico and Argentina, where the presidents lost massive support in legislature. So at the, and I think that the same trend is going to uh, remain for the elections of Colombia and Brazil next year, where Fujimorismo, uh, where uh, Uribismo and uh, Bolsonarismo are uh, set to lose. I think what what makes this story interesting in Brazil, however, is that possibly the victory of Lula, if that happens to to occur, will most probably lead to a process of reinstitutionalization uh, of the country after all these Bolsonaro years. So in that sense, there's an optimistic note that Brazil was the first among these countries to elect a populist outsider and maybe, again, the first to uh, step back from this process. Fascinating. Thank you, Daniela. Uh, D Duncan, how is the situation in Mexico? Uh, we know AMLO is recently in Washington. What do you see going into, um, I guess, the final years of AMLO's sexenio? It's, it's actually a fascinating situation right now in Mexico because, of course, we have a president who has extraordinarily high approval ratings amongst the Mexican uh, public. Uh, the latest numbers put him in the, uh, the high to upper 60s, sorry, the mid to upper 60s. Um, and, you know, he, uh, he's been carrying out his agenda more or less at will, with some checks on his power from the courts and from some regulatory institutions. But then in this summer's uh, midterm elections, we saw that the Mexican people, even though they very much support the president as a person and in his presidential office, they voted um, in favor of his party in the, uh, in the Congress, but not nearly in the numbers that they did three years ago, which means that the president saw his majority in Congress being decimated. Uh, that means that he doesn't have the same kind of mandate for the second half of his administration that he wanted. It means that he has serious checks on his ability to check the, uh, sorry, to change the constitution. Um, and he's really now looking towards 
uh, a strategy where he appeals straight to the people, directly to the people going around the Congress. Um, he has a referendum planned for March of next year, which is seen as being a uh, a referendum which will serve as a ratification of his presidency for the remaining three years, although officially it's about whether or not uh, there should be a, a revocation, revocacion um, of his of his presidency. But he's in a really uh, he's in a very interesting position right now. Um, Mexicans uh, have used democratic institutions to check the power of the ruling party, and yet they still love their president very much. Fascinating. Thank you for that, Duncan. Um, let me come back to you, Cindy. Why we see the candidates on the far ends of the political spectrum have tended to gain traction more than centrist opponents that they have. What? Why are voters converging around political extremes rather than the center? And what is this phenom- how is this phenomenon playing out across the region? Well, let's see. Um, there are a lot of hypotheses. One thing I would say is that the, the political, uh, this, the whole sort of number of candidates is very fragmented. And uh, the centrist candidates um, can't agree on a single person to run. And that tends to favor extremes. That um, that can appeal to a solid political base on on either the left or the right, um, and the the fragmentation is is really quite astounding in a country like Colombia. I think there are still something like fifty or sixty pre candidates for elections that will be held next May, so we're not that far off. Um, and what explains the uh, well? I, I think that that helps to explain it. Another thing that that helps to uh, or, or that one needs to pay attention to, is that the polling does not necessarily reflect public attitudes. Because if you look at the person who was elected in Peru, Pedro Castillo did not even register in the polls in um, in the top eight candidates. Um, and yet he won in a runoff uh, with Kiko Fujimori, where most Peruvians felt like they were voting for, you know, the the least worst alternative. Um, and I think we've seen a lot of that, given the polarization of the political um, spectrum. Uh, Benjamin, do you, do you agree with that uh, observation? Do you think that that's what's driving people away from the center, uh, just a fragmentation? I would never disagree with Cindy. That's bad for business and, and major risk taking. I would only add, if I could, to say that I think, you know, you've just had bad performances by governments of major you know, traditional parties. And I think that helps explain it as well. When you've had a series of governments, including, you know, a a transfer of power, and none of them have been able to sustainably improve economic conditions, you then open the door to these anti-system candidates that Daniela was talking about. And so, you know, Latin America is struggling not just during the pandemic, but, you know, has been experiencing almost a decade of really slow growth and in some cases, you know, deep recessions. So it's pretty natural for uh, voters to lose their loyalties to particular political parties that have been around sometimes for a century and become much more open to alternatives. Um, Cindy Arnson. Sure. Just to reinforce that point, um, the Latino Barometro poll that was taken, you know, as much as possible um, in, in 2020 um, showed that fully 70 percent of Latin Americans, again, Huge variations across countries, Uruguay, Costa Rica versus Peru uh, or or Ecuador, but fully 70 percent of people were dissatisfied um, with uh, with democracy, the way democracy was functioning, delivering 
um, in their in their countries. The other finding that they came up with was that political parties, if if you ranked all of the institutions um, uh, and and measured the level of trust in those institutions, political parties were at the very bottom, um, something like thirteen percent um, versus the church that was at the top with over sixty percent. So you know the politicians and parties have a long way to go to reestablish. Um, the confidence of of electorates, and we can come back later to some of the reasons that 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 is. But I don't want to uh, take all the time away from Daniela. <laughs> no, I, I I absolutely agree, and I was going to emphasize actually that it's not uh, this dissatisfaction with uh, democracy tracks pretty well economic performance. So we know that when we are in like bad economic times, people not only vote against the governments, but sometimes they want to vote against the system. Uh, and that's, I think, it's, it's very, it's a major concern, given that we don't see the end of this uh, economic crisis yet. I think this is going to be a trend for next years. And as uh, in the same way as people do not trust uh, parties in Latin America, if you see the Latino barometer, one of the institutions that's mo- most trusted, uh, uh, believe it or not, is the military. Uh, and that again, <laughs> it's not not a very good prospect for for democracy in countries with a. a a history of authoritarian rule. Benjamin Gadan. Yeah, I think interestingly, the Biden administration really seems to recognize the link that Daniela is pointing out, which is dissatisfaction with the quality of life. And so a loss of faith in democratic institutions and traditional political parties. There was an important speech by the Secretary of State in Quito um, just a few weeks ago, and then recently congressional testimony by the senior U.S. diplomat for Latin America. And in both cases, this link was addressed very frontally, which was you cannot only support the procedures of democracy, the institutions on paper, clean elections, and expect there to be a groundswell of support for democracy in countries where it's not delivering, where there's great suffering, increasing poverty, decreasing employment. So you really need to make sure these countries are growing sustainably and that people have a decent livelihood and have decent security. Then you can get the sort of public uh, uproar when there's democratic backsliding. You won't get that otherwise. And so places like El Salvador um, and places like Mexico, as Duncan has described, you'll see populist leaders eroding democratic norms and still very popular. Because again, if they can address security, address economic inequality, um, it may be that populations are willing in the short term to overlook the democratic erosion. Duncan, let me bring you in here on this. And in particular, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about electoral violence. Mexico and I think Nicaragua and some others have seen an escalating level of violence recently. Has electoral violence provided uh, for some boost for successful leaders if they're able to run on law and order? How do you see that factoring? It's a really interesting question, Chris. Um, for many years, people have uh, argued or rather have questioned why uh, you know, the rule of law, public security isn't a bigger electoral issue in Mexico. And once again, in this, uh, this year's midterm elections, we saw that it wasn't the, uh, the major issue, wasn't the leading issue for voters um, or for the parties. And part of the reason for that is that nobody has an answer to how you solve the, uh, the public security uh, challenge in Mexico. Many things have been tried. None of them have worked. And we're now looking at you know, a 14-year period where the public security situation in Mexico has got worse and worse. Electoral violence this year was at a record high. We saw a record number of candidates um, being threatened and murdered uh, in the elections. 
And there was some disruption on election day, although it wasn't widespread. The most worrying aspect of what we saw this year in Mexico was that, uh, in fact, we had a number of candidates, a small number, but uh, it's significant nonetheless, uh, who were elected, even though they have well-established ties with organized crime. And a lot of people are very concerned about uh, this tendency in Mexico that you're seeing at the local and state level and even um, candidates running at the federal level who appear to have a history of collaboration with organized crime. Uh, and that's something that really will undermine democracy in the long run. Cindy Arnson. Sure. Just to reinforce what Benjamin said, I think the emphasis in the Biden administration um, has been on uh, demonstrating that democracies can deliver what people um, are looking for from their governments. And it's really notable. I'd like to just underscore another finding from the Lapop survey that was just released, you know, a couple weeks ago. Um, the more than three in five people in Latin America and the Caribbean believe that most or all politicians are corrupt. That is astounding, right? That is three out of five believe that many or, or all are corrupt. And shockingly, something that we've seen, you know, to a, a heartbreaking degree during the pandemic is that crime victimization over this last, uh, over this last year increased over previous years um, and, and crime victimization by public officials. And we knew that all of this public spending was going to open, you know, new opportunities, uh, you know, for for corruption. And the the polling really um, bears that out. Now, again, I would be remiss if I didn't say, you know, especially thinking of our friends in Uruguay and Costa Rica, that that the variety across the region is really profound. But if you look at these averages, I think it's a pretty disturbing picture. Absolutely. We have just a few minutes left. So if I can go uh, all the way around the table, I'm a little interested in, in how much we can blame COVID, pro or con. It's amazing, even in Canada, that they've had elections and they've been able to hold them and people have been able to vote. But COVID obviously puts tremendous pressure on public health and, and on governments and on leaders to deliver. And it's not as easy as putting on a good front. People are sick or they're not. To what extent is COVID exacerbating or just revealing some of the weaknesses in democracy across the hemisphere? Um, Benjamin, can I turn to you first and we'll move all the way around? Yeah, I'd be happy to quickly give you a few factors. I mean, I think it has made governance less effective, which has exacerbated these pre-existing trends of a lot of public disgust with the way government performs. And so increasing public openness to anti-system populists who want to come in and burn down institutions. I think that's been one impact. It gives excuses to figures who have kind of authoritarian tendencies who want to say, I don't want protests, but not because I don't like dissent, but because I want social distancing. Or I want to limit speech, not because I don't love the media, but because I want to fight misinformation and disinformation. It also increases corruption because there's a real urgency for public spending. And so you don't have some of the same procedures and transparency. So for a variety of reasons, I think it has accelerated some bad trends in the region. I would not by a long shot blame the pandemic, though, for the fundamental weaknesses in democracy in Latin America. And Benjamin, you were telling me the other day a little bit about Honduras as being a bright light. Uh, I, I'm, I'm always happy looking for good news. That's why I study Canada. What's <laughs> going on in Honduras? 
Yeah, I mean, usually Canada is the only opportunity to talk about a bright light um, in democracy in the hemisphere. But I think very uncharacteristically, Honduras has given us, I think, a success story in terms of managing an election, at least the basic mechanics. There was a lot of anxiety that in Honduras we'd see a great deal of violence in the run-up to the election. We did see some that we would see fraud as occurred in the last presidential election. There's no evidence of that. There was good international observation. And you're now having... Uh, a rotation of elites in Honduras, which I think all believe is necessary. We'll see how the, the new government handles the immense challenges. But I do think for now, Honduras has shown us uh, a clean election, a relatively peaceful election, and now a relatively professional transfer of power with the losing candidate from the National Party conceding politely and, and expeditiously. So I would say for now, we need to tip our hats to Honduras and to the international actors that supported the process. Danielle Campello, what, what's your sense? Yeah, my sense is that I agree with Benjamin that uh, COVID exacerbated uh, tensions that were there before. If we remember, uh, go back to going back to 2019, there were lots of uh, economic crises and, and issues and stability and protests and all that way before the pandemic. I'd, I'd like to highlight one point that it's usually overlooked and I think most goes back to my, my own research. I think one problem in Latin America that uh, uh, one that is in the nature of the economies of South America specifically is very very extreme economic volatility. And uh, these countries tend to move together and do well in some periods and do badly in some other periods. Uh, so uh, after 2011, what we see was a downturn that covered the whole region and ended up with all this instability in 2019. And I think it's uh, usually, it's very, it's overlooked the issue of economic volatility and how and I think this should be put at the center of the economic agenda to smoothen these cycles that create a lot of um, uh, excitement during the good times that leads to extreme frustration in the bad times. Uh, we should be talking more about this. Absolutely. Um, Cindy Arnson, looking at the polls, COVID and everything else, what's, what's driving this? Two, two quick points. Um, I agree with Daniela completely that, you know, dissatisfaction with democracy um, was there and, and had grown exponentially over the last decade before COVID hit. So, you know, to a certain extent, it tells us a lot that the numbers have not deteriorated, deteriorated all that much, you know, during the pandemic. But what COVID has laid bare is this dramatic institutional weakness that has made public health uh, delivery and educational delivery and, you know, the, the digital divide has just put all of those issues into really sharp relief. And I think that, you know, we um, uh, have yet to see the full consequences of all of that. Duncan, uh, Wood, last word to you. Uh, well, I was lucky enough to be an official observer in the elections in Mexico this summer. And uh, it was a remarkable experience to see how what is essentially a citizen-run democratic process, was so successful at times of great stress for the people. And part of that is because it's citizen-run. You saw neighbors helping neighbors. You saw a high degree of uh, investment of time and effort in the election by the, uh, by the voters themselves. And also you saw an expertly uh, run election by the National Electoral Institute, the INE, um, who trains the citizens so they can run their own elections. And that is something which I think is, uh, is, is another bright spot. But there's a huge caveat here. And the caveat is this. Because the election uh, went really against the, uh, the interest of President López Obrador this summer, 
He has got his sights firmly set on the National Electoral Institute. He is trying to undermine its authority. Um, he's already cut its budget several times. And even though he's tasked it with organizing a referendum on his own presidency for next March, he's, uh, his uh, party in Congress has refused to give the Electoral Institute a budget to do so. And all of this is a very thinly veiled attempt to undermine the legitimacy of that Electoral Institute. And that is what I see as being the single biggest challenge to democracy in Mexico at this point in time. Thank you very much. We'll have to leave it there. Cindy, Daniela, Benjamin, Duncan, thank you all. We look forward to learning from all of you in future episodes. Until then, from all of us at the Wilson Center at America's 360, I'm Chris Sands. Thanks for joining us. This episode of America's 360 was produced by Oscar Cruz, Cecily Casanella, Sam Kane Jimenez, and Zoe Reed, with the assistance of Barbara Simati, Nina Elard, Ari Gandhi, Manuela Jimenez, and Noah Silva. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.